Hello, I'm Diane Atwood, host and producer of the Catching Health podcast. For years, I was the health reporter on WCSH 6, now known as New Center, Maine. And now I produce the Catching Health blog and a podcast. My mission remains the same, to provide health reporting that makes a difference. In that vein, let me tell you about Dr. Ron Bissell. For more than 35 years, Dr. Bissell was a surgeon with a busy practice in Southern Maine. His area of expertise was head, neck, face, jaw, and mouth surgery. The technical term is oral and maxillofacial surgery. For a variety of reasons, one day when he was still in his 50s, long before retirement age, Dr. Bissell closed his practice. And as he puts it, the next day he entered a whole new world one that often left him feeling scared and depressed, but hopeful. Fifteen years have passed since that fateful day. It took a lot of hard work, but Dr. Bissell was able to rebuild his life. Why did he stop being a surgeon? What were the struggles he had to overcome? How was he able to turn his life around? What is he doing now? We're about to find out. Dr. Ron Bissell is my guest on today's episode of the Catching Health Podcast. Welcome, Dr. Bissell. I'm so happy that you could be with us here today. Thank you for inviting me. My first question, though, is why on earth did you become a surgeon? Is this something that even as a little kid you dreamed of being? Not really. I just was fortunate because my parents were both ordained ministers, which uh, gave me a different viewpoint on life because I could see them actually treating people and caring for them and dedicating their lives to just helping other people. That kind of ingrained in me this need or passion to try and help other people. And because it was attached, their business was attached without any um, need for physical monetary rewards, I didn't have that in my vocabulary. My vocabulary was just to help other people. So I was really intrigued by that because it led me into wanting to take care of people in a way that was different than others or other businesses or other professions. I didn't really have any particular idea in mind, although when I was in undergraduate school, I did kind of have an interest in ophthalmology, which uh, is a little bit different than what I wound up doing. But surgery fascinated me because I could have instant reward for what I could do for people. I could see that they changed, I could change their lives. That was particularly true in the trauma surgery situation, which is where I was trained in Boston for that. And uh, by treating people who are in a traumatic situation who have a disfigurement or some other um, problem secondary to the trauma that they sustained, you get an immediate feedback, not just from the patient, but from yourself, because you can stand back and say, I did a good job on that one. You know, I'm really proud of myself. Or the patient would say, you know, thank you very much and be very appreciative of what you did. I'm wondering if because of the environment in which you were raised, you ran your practice a little different than normal. Now I say normal, what is normal? But did, <laughs> you, did you bring some of what you learned as a child into your practice of medicine? Oh, absolutely. My practice, I know, was very different than other practices because it was based upon taking care of people. I was um, not only surgeon, but I also was a psychiatrist, psychologist, and half a dozen other things. And 
I prided myself because I would spend time with people. It's not like today where you have 10 or 15 minutes to see someone. I would take whatever it took to put this person at ease or to uh, reassure them of uh, what they were about to go through. I also had different uh, attitude in the office. It didn't look like an office. It looked like the reception room looked like your living room. It looked it was comfortable. It was had pictures on the wall. It didn't have plaques all over saying how great I was. And the music that I played had no words to it because words in music are recorded subconsciously. And I didn't want that to go for me and myself, you know, at first, but then for patients too. Because if you have music going that is negative or is loud or is rocky or whatever, that puts the person, takes the ease of the person away and makes them even more nervous. So by doing that, I could have the patient before I even saw them relaxed and comfortable and and I could walk in the room and I always put my hand on their shoulder or their arm because that was a um, almost like a Reiki maneuver where I was transferring my energy to them. And when I did that, they immediately uh, just sort of calmed down and were very responsive to having whatever procedure that was done or even to talking and explaining to me why they needed to have that done. So I was very rewarded by doing it that way. So yes, it was different than other practices. And it's, it sounds like it was a very fulfilling opportunity for you. It was. Uh, the surgery was very fulfilling. I enjoyed that a great deal, particularly the trauma surgery. Um, a few months ago, I was in a restaurant, and a waitress was um, kept looking at me all the time, and I, I couldn't figure out what was that was all about until she came over, and she says, Are you Dr. Bissell? I said, Yes, yes, I am. And she says, Do you remember me? She says, I know you don't, she says, but I had a traumatic injury in a car accident about 26 years ago. She says, and look, there's not even a scar. She says, you can't even see I had anything wrong. She says, I just wanted to come over and thank you for that. What a nice feeling. Yeah, it was an amazing moment because it, it, that kind of thing you don't hear a lot of times. In trauma cases, you, you, a lot of times you take care of the problem, you fix the patient, or if you want to put it that way, and, and they walk out of your office, you never see them again. And, and, you know, so to have that happen was very, very rewarding. And so many years later. Yes, absolutely. So for 35 or so years, you had this very successful, busy surgical practice, and then you closed it. Why? Uh, I closed it because the surgery uh, was very fulfilling. But there's another part of me that wasn't being fulfilled, and that was the inside part of me, the spiritual part of me. And over the years... I had a lot of uh, different um, parts of my life where I was put on hold several times. When I was 19, I, I had a pneumonia, case of pneumonia, which I was almost died from. Um, at that time, all they had was penicillin and streptomycin. And thank goodness the bugs were resistant to that because I wouldn't be here if they weren't. But I spent a month in the hospital, and, and, or a couple months in the hospital, and then when I went home, I was at bed rest for another month or two, and then it took quite a while to recover. And so that was a real eye-opener for me because it gave me, I think, my first real glimpse into the possibility that, you know, I could die and I, and I, and I wouldn't be here. Second time was when I was in my mid-40s. At that time, uh, I had a systemic blood infection, which came from, I have no idea, and neither, neither did the doctors, but... Um, again, I was put on massive antibiotics. 
for long periods of time. And uh, after that, uh, it took sort of even longer to, to recover from that one for some reason. I think it was because it was more systemic than the, the pneumonia was. But uh, in recovering from, from that, again, it was a lesson for me because I had a full-time practice going. I had a family. I had two sons in college. I had, you know, everything everybody would want except I couldn't work like I could before. And what I found was that I got more and more fatigued, uh, got tired or got more, uh, had more problems remembering certain things, although not enough that anybody would ever know, but I would know myself. And when I started noticing that, that I was feeling something that no one else was, I decided it was time to start thinking about, you know, stopping. It was a very hard decision to make. It took me several months to make that decision, but my family kept telling me, Dad, Dad, you should stop because you're killing yourself. And I heard that enough times that um, it started resonating, and I started watching what I was doing. But when I got down to where I could see one patient a day because I was so fatigued and so tired, I realized I couldn't support my office, my staff, or my family. So that was the end of that. I want to explore that more, but first I want to ask you, did I hear you say that even before this, you were feeling kind of an emptiness or that something was missing? Yeah, I, I was always a person who, um, the joke in the family was that I would be up on a mountaintop with an orange robe and a bald head, you know, looking <laughs> looking to the sunrise or something. And because I was always different that way, I always looked at things from a very spiritual, introspective position. And um, I was a little bit different, to say the least. And uh, But that led me to, when I went into practice, led me to uh, study different types of techniques to help reduce stress because uh, tra trauma practice is stressful at times. And I decided to try meditation because that was, back in the early 70s was the big deal. It was, you know, everybody was doing meditation. So I did that, but I did my own kind of thing because I had been reading and studying it for several years. But then in one year I said, I'm going to go take a course in this because I want to make sure you know, I'm doing it right, which today to me is humorous, which I'll hopefully remember to explain to you. But um, so I took the course and, and it was, yeah, exactly what I you know, was doing myself and it wasn't anything different to it, except it had a, a few differences that I did in that had to do with a lot of what I do today, and that is that too many people uh, teach people to do things in a very rigid manner. For example, in meditation, they tell people you have to sit up straight in your chair, you got to put your feet on the floor, you got to, you know, look straight ahead, you can't move, you got to whatever. And for me, that just sort of removed the whole reason you were there. Uh, the reason you were there was to get away from all that and to. Um, get to a place of peace and, and quiet. So I um, kept doing that. And one day, uh, my wife and I went to New Hampshire, and we were sitting by a lake, and it was a nice sunny day, clouds in the sky. And I was laying in a chair, and I was watching the clouds go by. And as a kid, I used to make animals out of clouds. I'm sure you probably did that, too. And uh, so I was up there kind of just kind of having fun doing that. And all of a sudden, I kind of started going into a, a pretty deep meditative state. And 
which was very relaxing because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to sit there and be able to just kind of um, leave and get stressed relieved. And I had a very interesting experience. And the experience was sort of like a crack in time. I fell through a crack in time. And I found myself somewhere else. And that crack in time led me to a place of uh, extreme peace, kind of forever distance. You can never see the end of it. It was just, you were just part of everything. And it lasted probably for a good, oh, I don't know, half, half hour, 45 minutes. And I came, when I came back, I kind of woke up because something disturbed me. And uh, all of a sudden I said, wow, I said, what just happened? And from that experience, I realized that there are there is a place inside of all of us that is a place of calm and a place of peace and a place of quiet. And the idea is to reach that place. And once you do, it calls called an awakening by a lot of different uh, people. Once you become awakened, what happens is your whole experience of life changes from just being who you are to the entire universe out there. Kind of the connection seems to be quite obvious to you. So that led me further along and, and um, kept feeding me and kept feeding me and feeding me. And, and that's what I think really saved my life in a lot of ways during many situations, but also led me to that ability to be able to start talking to people about it and to not be afraid to and you know say, yes, I've had these experiences and, and I can explain what they're about and how to take care of it. And, and it was just an unusual I always say it's kind of an unusual life I had, and it was a wonderful life, but it was also a very spiritual life. And today, I have that uh, so deep inside me that I'm uh, I'm constantly there now, and it's just a wonderful feeling to be there. Would you call your experience when it happened that first time a form of meditation? No, it was a well. I think it was a deeper form of meditation. I know a lot of meditation people um, will kind of guide people into a room or have them select a room or a different you know place to go into, and that's sort of like unlocking the key to to a part of themselves that they usually has the door closed with. And this was different than that. This was like I don't know if you've ever seen Mickey in the Mirror, the little cartoon that Walt Disney did back in the 30s, and it's a story of Mickey Mouse laying in bed. And um, you see his spirit comes up out of out of him. He goes over, looks around the room, and goes over. He sees a mirror and looks at the mirror, and he touches it. And he notices his fingers go into the mirror a little bit, and then he pushes again, and his hand goes into the mirror, and then he goes a little more. He keeps pushing. All of a sudden, he pops through the mirror, and he's on the other side, and everything's you know backwards because he's on the other side. And uh, that's sort of what it was like for me. It was sort of like I jumped through this, I call it a thin, sticky veil between us and the spirit. And um, once you do that and you experience it, you just never, ever forget it because it's such a peaceful thing. But how do you get back to it? Back to where? To that place? Yes. Well, there's various, well, there's, it's difficult in this world, I have to admit, even for myself. But I have a little technique that I use, which works very well for me, and I've taught other people it seems to work for them. And people tell me that they can never meditate because their mind's always going all over the place, and they're thinking this and thinking that, and they got to do this, go to do that. 
because you live in such a busy world. But I tell them, I said, well, when you're in a state where you want to meditate, you close your eyes. I said, you get these words going by. I said, don't concentrate on the words. Let them go. I said, concentrate on the space between the words. And when you concentrate on the space between the words, that space gets larger and larger and larger and larger. And pretty soon the words just don't even matter. You know, it feels like a very rich experience. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we race around all day long and our lives are full, but we feel kind of thin in our spirit, I think, inside of us. And what you're describing feels very rich. It is. It's a very, um, it's an incredible experience I've had. Uh, the experience that that I've had that has really led me to write well, six books now and, and all the work I do on the internet um, comes from an experience of meditating for, for quite a few years. And then almost, I don't know how to quite explain it, other than becoming a conduit for words. And I started getting words while I was meditating, and I knew they were beautiful, and I said, boy, these are really... But when I stopped meditating, I forgot them, because they left them, obviously, back where they were. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was back in the days when we had the first little portable computers came out, although they weren't little, but they are portable, sort of. So I got one of those, and as I was receiving these words, I would transcribe them, I'd type them, so that afterwards I could remember them. So, go ahead. Well, I, I feel as if you're contradicting the advice that you just gave us about meditating, you know, to focus on the space between the words, and yet here you are realizing that some of those words that came into your consciousness were important. I think it was the, the difference is that when you go to, to meditate, uh, you're going for a specific purpose, and that purpose is to relax, go to a place where it's peaceful and calm, and to relieve yourself from stress. Well, once you do that for a while, it becomes natural for you to just be in that place, and it doesn't really take much effort to be there or to get there. And then you say, okay, what do you do now? Well, some people can stay there forever. Some people, like me, are curious. And uh, instead of uh, feeling terrible about the situation or that you're that you're wondering, well, why should be doing something, I started exploring that space that I was in. And... When I did, all of a sudden I had this barrage of words coming towards me, and they weren't like words you'd hear other places. You know, they weren't like everyday speak. It was um, spiritual speak, I guess you could say, and that's what caught my attention. What kind of words, though? Give us some examples. Uh, well, I can give you a, let me tell you a little quote that I, that I can tell you here. It says, um, by learning about the spiritual world around you, you will become the glow of the universe. Look at yourself with love and notice what you see. Awaken to the possibilities of your life on this globe and welcome change, for in it lies your future. Learn of beauty, the beauty of your soul. Your world is fertile ground. Become the maker of your new tomorrow. That's just something I just happened to pick up. But I have, are you telling us that these are words that came to you when you were in this 
Yes. Yeah. Wow. What 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 I interpreted it as is is you heard of spirit guides, you've heard of spirits, you've heard of all these different things. Well, I was at a particular um, tough place in my life because I realized that I had this problem and what was I going to do about it? And um, as a way of of helping to relieve those symptoms, I would do meditating, but I also would uh, do visual type meditations and with within myself, not looking at a screen or something, but just within myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one day when this started happening, I kind of, I kind of said, uh, hello, who is this? <laughs> it's myself inside. <laughs> and, uh, I came back with about five or six different voices. Like I, I, I don't like voices because they weren't voices. They were, they were energies, put it that way. And um, they each had different things to say to me. Like if I was having a particular problem in, in one day or something, they'd address that problem. And another day I'd address another problem. And so over a period of time, I, become, I became quite comfortable in, in um, back and forth kind of conversations. And at first you thought, this is crazy. People are thinking I'm stupid, so or I'm really lost it. And when I was in practice, I was very concerned because of that. Uh, I didn't want people to think I was, you know, off the rails, but uh, I kept kind of cut it, kept it to myself. The first thing I did was an audio tape, which was a 90-minute audio tape of spiritual meditations, and the meditations were just words that I received, and I put them down. There's poetry, and I so I read the poetry and and uh, put some music behind it. It's a beautiful tape, but. Um, that was when I first started getting a real deep connection and those five different, five or six different, uh, energy levels, uh, kind of merged into one. And that one is, I gave it the name of, of Eben, or he told me his name was Eben, E-B-A-N. And, um, I learned about him. I asked him about his history and his history went back to the Viking days and it was quite interesting. And, um, Go ahead. It kind of sounds like having a higher power within yourself. But what happened is that I'd like to think we all have that within ourselves. Oh, absolutely. But you recognized absolutely. it. You came to recognize it. I came to recognize it at a very young age. And um, because of that, my thoughts always went in that direction. So I was always connected, but I, was, I had to be part of this world because I was just a kid, right? And mm-hmm. And as I got older, I was, I'd allowed it to get stronger and stronger. And whereas today, I have probably, I would guess, oh, maybe 10,000 pages of material. That you've written. Ever, well, that I've not, that I've received. Oh, my goodness. And, oh, my goodness. And out of that, I have um, um, written, the books have a lot of his poetry in them. If you ever see my books, you'll see there's, there in, there's a, there's verbiage and, and paragraphs, and then in between them, there's poetry. The poetry is all the poetry that I received. Well, I want to talk now about what happened when you had to close your practice. You were very ill. Yes, I Physically was. ill. You had um, tremors, pain, fatigue, and these, uh-huh. si- these symptoms hung on for a couple of years. And, yes. And they forced you to close the practice. Yes, but they forced me because I was the only one that knew I had the problem. In other words, um, 
I, I, I could compensate for things. Uh, if I started getting a little tremor, I knew how to, to guide, you know, say, put a needle or whatever. And, and from a patient standpoint, they had no idea. They had no clue. Uh, but from a personal, internal standpoint, I was sick. I was um, in a lot of pain. And uh, my days just kept getting shorter and shorter. So before, my theory was always, I'm here to help people. I'm not here to hurt people. And as soon as I noticed that I was not of the highest quality that I, I wanted to be, and I just mean that by, oh, maybe instead of being kind to someone, I may be sharp with them if they're kind of, you know, you know how people can give you trouble sometimes just because they like to. Well, or, and if you're in pain, it's uh, our ability to tolerate things diminishes yeah, greatly. Yeah, that's what it was from. and. I found that there's a, there's a cycle you have, and the cycle is if you're a chronic pain person, the chronic pain depletes your brain chemicals. That causes more fatigue, and, and the fatigue then causes depression, and the depression then creates the, a loop cycle back to pain. You know, pain continues, and you get this loop that keeps going, going, and going, and going. So you can only take that so long, and, and I did, and I started on different types of medita- medications, and uh, when I did that, I said, no, I can't do this. And then I got down to where I was so fatigued that I couldn't really see hardly anybody. Then I just said, no, I'm done. And, and, but no one knew. And, and that was always a remarkable thing. Even today, people, you know, I'll stand up for two hours and do a workshop and they'll just not think anything. And, and some people might know about my situation and they'll just, you know, be amazed that I can do that. And, you know, I tell them, I say, you know, when you get into that space where spirit dwells and, and you come from there, pain and, you know, all those things just go away. What was it, your diagnosis? And it wasn't easy to figure things out, was it? No, I went to rheumatologists. I went to, oh gosh, everybody you can imagine. And one person told me it was because I was battered as a child. And I said, thank you very much. And I left his office because that was crazy. Uh, I had two very loving parents, um, but they tried to put a stick it on everything. And finally they just said, well, you must have fibromyalgia because that's what, you know, the, the, the big thing is now or then even, or starting to be. And I says, no, wait a minute. I, I, you know, I had two, three, actually three times in my life when I had massive antibiotics, I said, and I think that the problem is that I either either have some type of autoimmune system thing or I've got um, some other kind of physical rewiring of things because of all this, you know, poison I was taking to try and stay alive. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I still think that's what it is. And I said to my doctor once, I said, you know, I think I've got PS, what is it, PSD? PTSD. Post-traumatic. P- P- yeah, post-traumatic. And he goes, what do you mean? I says, well, I've been treating traumatic people all my life. I said, and every person that comes to me is in pain or has a problem or is, wants you know, something corrected. I said, that's stressful. I said, and when you leave that, I said, it's just like, I said, I feel, you hear people talk about and you read about post-traumatic stress. And I, and I go and I said, yeah, that's almost exactly, you know, except I, I don't have the flashbacks and all that kind of thing. But, you know, the fatigue and the tiredness and the, and the feeling sometimes like you're, you're, you're not worth anything, you know, that kind of thing. But there was real physical pain and oh, physical symptoms. Absolutely, yes. And yes. you were on a lot of medication. Yes, I was. Because of that. I and, still am, yeah. Okay. 
So all of this meditative spiritual practice helped you through this kind of like the darkest time of your life, it feels like to me. It really did. It, 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 it made it so that I guess the way I could put it is that I never identified myself with what I did. I identified myself with who I was or who I am. So that leaving one, you know, taking one um, costume off and putting another one on wasn't like I was doing something difficult. It was something like, oh, okay, well, we'll just do this for a while. You know, it wasn't, and each time I, I was dedicated to what I did, and I was very good at what I did. I was a very good surgeon. But, you know, there's a lot of doctors that when they retire, they have nothing, you know, they wait until they're 75, 80, or 90, and then they retire, and they wonder why there's nothing left to do. And um, I wasn't that kind of person. I, I was always aware of the fact that I was a person, I was a, spole, a soul, I was a spirit, and I was, I was an energy source, and, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't doctor, I was Ron, but I was my what I performed was being a doctor. I guess you could say my my job was being a doctor. Does that so make sense? It does make sense. And so you were in your fifties when you stopped being a doctor. When you yes. you retired, yes. um, right. and you were not well. No. Uh, would you say that was the lowest point of your life? I'd say it was. I think the other times when I was. The other times when I was sick, I, I never had the, uh, the idea, except pneumonia, when I saw, I was in a room with four other people and three of them died. They all had the same diagnosis I had. So it was difficult from that standpoint. But I was young and I never thought of dying. I never thought this is, you know, I'm just sick. I'll get over this. And even in my 40s, I said, you know, I got too much to do. I can't, you know, I got to get over this and get on with it. Well, you know, that led to a bladder cancer, discovery of bladder cancer and had that treated and, okay. you know, and... So it was it was one thing after the other, but my spirit or my inside or who I was was always very optimistic and was always saying it's going to be okay, just don't worry about it. And and I was um, constantly being reinforced by the spirits that were there, and um, I still am today. I said, yeah, "Come on, Ron, you can do this," and and so that was a big thing for me in my life. Yes. So when you closed your practice. And you're trying to figure out what's happening with you physically. Mm -hmm. um, and the bladder cancer didn't happen at that time. That had happened before then? No, that, that happened because they were doing uh, diagnostic tests for trying to figure out where the infection came from. Oh, I see. Part, part of it was doing a bladder exam just to make sure there wasn't something down, you know, there. And there was. And um, so my attitude was, well, let's get rid of it. <laughs> and so... Uh, you know, being a surgeon, it's a, you know, cutting things is what you do, and you see something like that. So, cut it out. <laughs> cut it out. Yeah, I don't want that in there anymore. So we did that, and it healed, and everything was fine. But um, it led me again to this this reality of life and reality of fragility of it, and how important it is to tell people how much you appreciate them, or tell people uh, that you love them, tell them that um, you know, thank them for things because. Those are the things that make the difference in how you feel and how and how your spirit is. There is a doctor by the name of um, uh, what's his name. Um, he spent his life. It'll come to me. He spent his life um, studying ice crystals, hmm. 
uh, and um, he, when he grew, when he got older, he developed a, a technique where he could take his microscope and uh, freeze the drop of, put a drop of water and freeze it, and then take a picture of the crystal that it formed. And uh, when he did that, he noticed that some crystals were really beautiful and some weren't. He couldn't figure out why because it all came from the same place. So what he did was he formed an experiment where he took samples of the same water. And in one room, he exposed it to rock music. In the other room, he exposed it to, to classical music, the little sample that's in a bottle. Mm-hmm. In another room, he had a person swear at it over and over again, tell it was a piece of junk and telling all kinds of things. And in the room next to that one, it's someone saying loving things to this bottle of water. You know, I love you. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And then in the final, the third room, he had um, speakers. And uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. We already did that one. <laughs> Getting confused here. The third one he wrapped paper around the bottles and the paper uh, had sayings on it. One group had terrible things on it. The other group had wonderful things on it written on the back of the, in the paper and he wrapped it around the bottles and just left them there for, for a while. So he came back and he did the crystal studies. Matsu, Mats, Matsuri. Matsuri. Uh, Matsuri is his first name. Uh, it'll come. I just anyway. found it. I Googled it while we were talking. Okay, good, good. Matsuro Emoto. Yeah, Emoto, that's him. Yeah. And if you look at the pictures that you see, and they're on the internet, they're everywhere, you'll notice the difference in the crystals. And the crystals that were done with rock music and were done with sayings that were awful and people screaming at it had disfigured crystals. Hmm. The crystals where love and appreciation and gratitude were given had beautiful crystals. So he went one step further, and he says, okay, let's do something really off the wall. He said, so I'm going to go out to a lake by a monastery, and I'm going to get water from the lake in the monastery, which he knew was polluted and wasn't, you know, the purest water in the world. And I'm going to give it to the one sample to the monks, and I'll take the other sample myself. And so, okay. So he took the sample. He looked at the sample that he took and put it under a scope, microscope, and the crystals were all deformed. And he sort of went, that's interesting, because I didn't do anything except take the water. So after, I forget how long, a week or two, or, he went back to the monks and collected the water from the monks, which was the same water he had, and put them under the microscope, and the crystals were gorgeous. Wow. Well, I will definitely put some links or put up some images on the yeah. blog post that I do with this podcast. Uh, that, that was fascinating. I've not it, heard of that before, but what it, a lesson. It is fascinating because it's it really opened people's eyes when I use that as an example because it's the it's a true link between the physical and the spiritual. And Ron, when you were in this difficult time of your life, I mean, I was just thinking as you were talking about your practice, for instance, that was your livelihood, mm-hmm. and you yep. weren't even of retirement age. No, I wasn't. No, I was. I was. Um, that, of course, was a very big concern to my wife and to myself, because what are we going to do, kids in college and the whole thing? So what I did was I, I just I prayed more. I spent more time in meditation. I, I kept myself positive as I could at the time. And um, 
it all came together and it all came together in such such an easy beautiful way that's why people say well i don't i just i don't know i can't do that i don't know how can i it's too hard and i go no it's not the reason it's hard is you're chasing after it if you just let it catch you then it happens you know it's like uh, the um, what is it the secret thing that's going on the, oh yeah the book the secret yeah the secret yeah right. you know what well, it's just all about you know asking for and all that kind of stuff, and and that's part of it. But but don't force the river. You know, get in the flow. And every once in a while, a branch comes by that has pretty flower, and you pick the flower. I mean, it's every once in a while, there's, there's you get out of the way of a sticky branch. You know, you, but keep in the river, keep going in the river, and things tend to work out. There's an exercise I have people do, where they put a horizontal line on a piece of paper, and I have them put. On the left side, the date they were born, and the right side I leave open. Cause, <laughs> the date you know, we don't want to know about. Yeah, don't want to know about. And I said, and then put the most important things in your life on that line. And so they'll go and they'll put, oh, I graduated from high school. Oh, I went to college. Or I didn't do this. Or I went to that. And, and they put five or six things on there. And I say, okay, now, between those, I want you to put what happened between those. And we spend time kind of breaking it down, getting you know, a little more refined. And then at the end, I say to him, "Do you notice that where you are today is because you were, you are, you were where you were then?" And you, you went are. through those things, you experienced all those that, things. Absolutely, and that's why you're the person you are. So if you had, if you hung out with the wrong people, then you became, you know, a wrong person. If you want to put it that way, if you hung out with positive people, then you became positive. And it was just, it was just so obvious to me that it's just that simple and. People look, like, look at me like I have four eyes or something. And I, and I go, no. I said, just stop trying to chase the rainbow. Let it come to you. And is this how you so-called earned your livelihood by conducting workshops and things like that? No, I've never charged for anything I ever do. Wow. I, I don't because I have a deep um, appreciation, a deep respect, and a deep thank you to God and to universe for allowing me to be here. People don't realize that when you're born, you've won the lottery. I mean, you think about the odds of you being here, they're astronomical. And you think about the chances that your mother met your father and your grandfather met your grandmother and your grandmother and back and back and back. You have no business being on this earth. So why should you sit around and mope and, and say life is terrible? Because life is. And what you have to do, like I have to do, is live with the deck that, you know, that the universe gives you and do make it the best you can. So what I do is people say, I don't know why you can, how you can do these workshops. You have to stand and talk to people. And I go, because that's what gives me my peace and my comfort and gives me, um, like right now, just talking with you. I just I'm, I'm back in that place, and, and it, it's it's just a wonderful experience. So you have a website that you created, and it's called Listen to Whispers, and it's the number two. I will provide a link um, mm -hmm. uh, with the podcast on, on my Catching Health uh -huh. blog page. Um, well, I, the name Listen to Whispers. Where does that come from? Well, it comes back from when I was probably in my. Hmm, 30s maybe, early 40s. Uh, my mother and I used to always have uh, 
I guess I'd call them philosophical discussions. And and her father and grandfather, or grandfather, I think it was, um, was a person who was a very deep thinker. And she would always say, you know, you're very much like your father or my great grandfather. He, he used to think and he'd write these things. He says, and he just was, you know, just different like that, you know. And I said to her in the midst of this conversation, and she went back, we were talking about spirits and God and everything. And, and, and I looked at her and I leaned over to her and I says, Mom, have you ever heard God speak to you? Has God ever told you anything? Here you've been in ministry for, you know, 30, 40 years. He says, has God ever said, good job? Or has he ever said, hmm. keep it up, you know, or, or anything like that? And she leaned over to me, got real close to me and whispered to me. And she says, Ron. God speaks in whispers, so you have to be quiet in order to hear them. Which is what meditating is all about. Which is what meditating is all about. So listen, four whispers was my first um, one sight that I had, because I thought you had to listen for those whispers in order to hear them. And um, as I uh, came, got along in writing and giving talks and everything, and watching people uh, go from me to somebody else to some other guru and some big shot and wherever they are out in Utah or somewhere uh, to to see them talk about their experience. I said to myself, "No, that's not right because you can't just do that forever." I was taught. I had a, a gentleman who was he was actually my life mentor. I spent probably twenty five thirty years of my life with him. He taught me so much and. One of the things he always said is our job is to teach other people the values and the, you know, whatever, the, the essentials of living a good life. He says, but then it's up to them to then go teach that to others. And that always stuck with me because I realized that you don't really, you don't live a spiritual life until you become spiritual. You know, you don't live, you have to become what you want to be. Hmm. And, and you can't just think, well, next week I think I'm going to do that. No, it's right now. And there's no excuse for not right now. But and, and so what you've, what you're doing, Justice, you've learned to live a spiritual life and all you're doing, I'm keeping it simple, mm-hmm. is sharing your own experiences and allowing people to take what they want and do what they want with yeah, what you're I have putting no- out there. I have absolutely no interest in, in um, what's the word? No interest in making people want to go to this church, religion, this whatever. I, that's not my interest. I, what I've found is that my purpose is to be an awakener. And by that I mean just to awaken people to the possibilities that their life can be. And so I have a couple of questions running through my head. Yeah. Um, first, I want to make sure that people know that if they're interested in what you have to say, they can mm-hmm. go to your website, listen to whispers. Is it .com? It's .org. .org. Listen to the number two whispers.org. And they are going to find a wealth of things. There's workshops on there. There's meditation on there. There's, um, there's a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, um, Sheila St. Hilaire, who is a, uh, a healer through music, through sound. And I've got some of her meditations on there. 
Um, also, if you go to Ron Bissell on YouTube, you'll see a whole bunch of videos that I've done. We're going to have to wrap up here pretty soon. Before we say goodbye, you need to leave us with some concrete steps that we can take beginning the moment you and I hang up. The first step in spirituality, I think, is to discover the God within. Realize that there's a place inside of you where you can communicate with your creator. It's not anything fancy or anything terrible. It doesn't take a certain state of mind or a certain way of thinking. What you have to do is give up the you that is part of this world and become the you that is on the, in that space, and, and they're different. I call the space the soul space, and that was the title of my tape that I did because um, that's the place where it all happens. You know, it's like when you see sunlight coming through a window and you, and you look at it and you see the particles of dust kind of twinkling in the, in, the, in the energy of this light. You gotta realize that light is the energy of our creator. It's the energy of everything. It's who we are. And we need to switch our focus to realize that we're that energy and we can share that energy with whoever we want. And it's completely endless. If there's anything I could say to people, it's simply that. That we are all light from the source and that light is endless and we can give it away or we can hold it tight within ourselves and that doesn't get you anywhere. Well, Ron, you have certainly shared your light with us today. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. I appreciate your talking with me and I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Ron Bissell and I will be right back with more information from Catching Health. You've been listening to my conversation with Dr. Ron Bissell. To see the show notes for this episode, along with direct links to Ron's website, listentowhispers.org, and his YouTube channel, go to catchinghealth.com. And while you're there, take some time to look around. You'll find recipes, fitness tips, blog posts on a variety of health and wellness topics, and more podcast episodes. You can also sign up for a weekly update and my free wellness tips. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you.